Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director of the Long Now Foundation. When we started building the interval, our bar, library, event space, and headquarters here in San Francisco, we had to figure out how best to curate the library that would be in this space. That curation ended up becoming our Manual for Civilization project, a set of up to 3,000 books that would help sustain or even restart civilization. We have collected about 1,500 of the books so far and are always keeping our eye out for more. As it turns out, we're not the only ones who had the thought to compile the knowledge you would need to rebuild modern civilization from the ground up. Ryan North is an author and artist who you may be familiar with from Dinosaur Comics, one of the earliest webcomics, or one of his many other projects like Marvel's Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. However, we asked Ryan to talk with us not about any of those projects, but about a book he wrote called How to Invent Everything, a survival guide for the stranded time traveler. While its concept may sound fantastical, it's actually a very practical and well-researched book. Within its pages, you will find instructions for reinventing everything from language to agriculture and even the radio from first principles. It's a useful enterprise, even if you don't see yourself time traveling anytime soon. By studying how to recreate humanity's most important technological accomplishments, Ryan has uncovered deep truths about the nature of invention and human ingenuity. Before we engage in some light time travel with Ryan North, a quick note. The Long Now Foundation is entirely supported by donors and members. If you are already a member, thank you. Your support means the world to us. If not, please consider becoming the newest member of Long Now and supporting this series. It only takes a few minutes to set up, and after that, you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Without further ado, here's Ryan North on how to invent everything. Thank you. Thank you. This is me. Uh, I, this is me before pandemic. Look how happy, look how innocent. He's learned a lot. So yes, I am the guy who started Dinosaur Comics 20 years ago tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of Dinosaur Comics. Thank you. If you don't know what it is, it's a webcomic where I use the same pictures and I change the words. It's better than it sounds, because it sounds pretty horrible. It's a lot of fun. If you don't know me from that, you might, uh, if you don't know me at all, you could maybe discover me through print comics like Adventure Time Comics, Squirrel Girl Comics, Fantastic Four, I've done nonlinear adaptations of Shakespeare and a sequel to that. <laughs> I've done comics for Archie. I've done picture books. I've done short story anthologies, sequels to short story anthologies. I've done, adapted Slaughterhouse-Five into a graphic novel, which was awesome and terrifying. And I also have most recently done some Star Trek comics. So I do a bunch of different stuff. But I'm here today because I want to talk to you about not this book. This is my most recent book that I just came out about uh, taking over the world. But today we're going to talk about a different book called How to Invent Everything and my process of research in creating this book. So this is the How to Invent, How to Invent Everything <laughs> presentation. And it begins well, with this colorful character who you might recognize. He's Marty McFly from Back to the Future. I saw this movie when I was six years old and I spent the next 30 years thinking about it, basically. <laughs> And what I like so much is that in this story, Marty goes back in time. I'm going to spoil the plot of Back to the Future here. Sorry. <laughs> Marty McFly goes back in time and has some adventures, causes some problems. And at one point, he's at uh, the Enchantment of the Sea Dance, and he's playing rock and roll, and he's plagiarizing Chuck Berry. 
And who is at that performance but Marvin Berry, Chuck's cousin, who calls up Chuck and said, you know that new sound you're looking for, listen to this. And then Chuck presumably hears his own music from the future and thinks, this is great, I too will plagiarize this. And you have this, this, this time loop where whoever first wrote that song is now erased from the creativity of this. It's now like the universe invented itself. And that idea of taking some technology or art or anything back in time and then saying, I did this, this is my thing, <laughs> I created this. Really interesting, really, really fascinating to me, and I wanted to sort of explore that idea. And there are a lot of people who look at this idea of time travel, which, to our knowledge, is, is not possible, and say, you know, it's probably fine, it probably exists. Here's, here's a clip from YouTube. It's a woman from 1938, and well, look what she's doing there. She's talking on her cell phone. She's 100% talking on her cell phone. You look at the YouTube comments, and they're like, time travel is real. The government is lying to you. None of them realizing cell phone is a piece of technology that relies on other pieces of technology. A cell phone in 1938 is not going to let you talk to anyone, A, because no one else has a cell phone, and B, they require towers and all this infrastructure. Technology exists in a web of other technology. You can't just bring a cell phone back in time and expect it to work. And then the other complaint about this image, this video clip, is that it's not a cell phone, it's a hearing aid. <laughs> Technology changes over time, and early hearing aids, you'd hold to your ears, so you could hear what people were saying. This is just a handheld way to hear the people around you. But to our modern eyes, it looks like she's clearly talking to a cell phone, because that's what we do these days when we hold something to our ears, the more advanced version. So I had this idea to make a book where it would actually be a guide to rebuilding civilization from scratch at any point in human history. And what got me really excited about this project was it was going to be the most dangerous book in human history, if time travel is ever invented. Because you drop this book at any point in history, you change everything. And I was like, this is great. I love a dangerous book. I'm going to write, I'm going to write the most dangerous book in human history. And then I went to the bookstore, and I saw this book, and I was like, I'm going to write the second most dangerous book <laughs> in human history. So if you ever get a time machine, do not put this book in your time machine. <laughs> Take my book instead. So I had this idea. I wanted to write a manual for building civilization with you, if you had a time machine. And that requires figuring out what the time machine is. And I, wanted, I had this premise in my head of you go back in time and the time machine breaks. And so you open up the repair guide of this kind of cruddy time machine. It's not going to be fancy, it's not going to be high-tech, it's going to be like a rental market time machine. <laughs> and you open up the manual and it says, hey, you know, welcome to the past, sorry your time machine broke down, you're kind of out of luck. The time machine is the most complicated machine humanity has ever created, and you're not going to fix it in the past, so sorry, here's how to rebuild civilization, here's how to bring the future back to you. And with this idea of a rental market time machine, I needed to have a theory of time travel that made it work. So I said, OK, it's really irresponsible to send people back in time and let them stomp on all these butterflies and change the timeline because you would erase your own existence. So the time machine sends you back in time, creates a new timeline, and when you return, you go back to the present. Nice fictional theory of time travel that makes it less unethical to send people into the past and lets you use it for, like, resource extraction, all sorts of very questionable things. So I called my time machine the FC3000. It looks like this. We had a robot drawn on a chalkboard, because we live in the future. And tonally, 
and the past. Uh, tonally, I was really inspired by uh, airplane safety manuals where they go over this, you know, horrible thing <laughs> and make it seem almost boring. Like, oh yeah, you know, if the plane crashes, we'll just exit in an orderly fashion. It'll be fine. <laughs> So that corporate tone of, you know, you're trapped in the past and things are horrible, but it'll be, just follow the instructions, you'll be fine. <laughs> so we have the time machine. I label all the parts, which was great because it turned 30 years of watching Star Trek into a skill, because I could very easily rattle off the polarity-aligned Einstein-Rosen-Bridge generator or the Planck inhibitor shunt. You can just, I can talk for days about imaginary technology <laughs> super easily. And so now the step is to, to write the book, right? I've got the idea for the book. I've got this whole premise. All I need to do is write it. And I sat down at my computer, and I felt a lot like uh, this sequence, which is a Batman comic. If you're going to feel like someone, feel like Batman. This is an early Batman year one. He's not yet Batman yet. He's still Bruce Wayne. And uh, I'll read it to you. I'll do my Batman voice. So he's, panel one, he's saying, I'm not ready. I have the means, the skill but not the method. No, that's not true. I have hundreds of methods, but something's missing. Something's not right. I have to wait. I have to wait. And he's like kicking a tree in half. He's ready. <laughs> Bruce does not need to wait at this point. And so I felt like that. I felt like there's something missing. What do, what do I need to do? And I kind of started to feel like, oh no, this book I want to write is impossible because no one has written it yet. <laughs> and it's really hard to collapse civilization into a couple hundred pages. And the only solution to that is after you start feeling really bad for your life choices, you sit down and try to write a little bit of it. And after writing a little bit, I was like, okay, it's not impossible, it's just really, really hard. And the nice thing about really, really hard is you can work with really, really hard. So I did all this research, and I started to write, and I discovered a trend in the information I was gathering and assimilating. Usually, when you look at popular science books, there's a tone of triumph. Look at what we have created. Look how smart we are. We're really good at this being human, inventing things thing. And I was finding this tone, I guess, that you don't see often, which is, <laughs> we're not as smart as we think we are. And I kind of want to walk you through a couple of the examples I found in which that was the case, in which we had all everything we needed to invent a piece of technology and then didn't do it for a really astoundingly long period of time. And usually it was because we were laboring under a bad hypothesis. We thought something was true that wasn't. So the first example is uh, this beautiful stock footage I purchased of a compass. <laughs> so. Here's the compass. They could have been invented in 200 BCE. This is when the ancient Greeks started noticing they had these lodestones that were naturally magnetic. They were actually invented in 01,000 CE, which is 1,200 years of time between the two. And you'll think, oh, okay, well, you know, compasses are pretty complicated. That's a tiny sliver of metal balanced on a pin sandwiched between two layers of plastic. I can see why that would take some time. But when the compass was invented in China around 1000 CE, first it was used for fortune-telling for 100 or so years before it was used for navigation. And these first compasses were not the, the plastic thing I was describing. If you have a lodestone, a piece of magnetic material, it's naturally going to want to turn to point towards magnetic north. To allow it to freely turn, you just have to 
tie your rock to a string. The string supports the rock. The rock rotates freely. Tying a rock to a string took us over a thousand years <laughs> to figure out, because we were operating under this bad hypothesis that some rocks are just weird. I'll give you another example.、Uh, beautiful stock footage of a cute dog and a stethoscope. So stethoscopes could have been invented in 300 BCE. This is when we first came up with paper. They were actually invented in 0816 CE. The story here is you have this Victorian doctor、uh, man, heterosexual, and he has a theory that the sounds that bodies make could be diagnostic as a medical professional. And so he's been pressing his ear to his patient's chest, and then one day he has a patient, female, busty, and he's like, "This is too erotic for me. <laughs> I simply cannot press my ear to that chest. I need to leave room for Jesus." And so <laughs> he rolls up some paper, makes a tube, uses that, and discovers by accident that the tube isolates and enhances the sounds he's trying to hear that were in fact diagnostic. And so it took us 2,000 years between when we could have invented the stethoscope and did. And this was the only example in my research that I found of、uh, actual scientific progress being made by someone who was too horny to do their job properly. <laughs> so it, it did pay off in this instance. Bad hypothesis. Paper is boring, and I hate it. <laughs> Another piece of technology. You all recognize these. This is. These are buttons. Not really a difficult thing to figure out. So they could have been invented in 2800 BCE. This is when we first found evidence of humans tying pretty rocks and shells to their clothing to make themselves look nicer. Actually invented in around 1200 CE, which is 4,000 years of space. And what's killer is that the button is a great piece of technology. It allows clothes to be form-fitting. You don't have to fit them over your head. It allows them to be sturdier. And We spent 4,000 years thinking we looked pretty good with these nice shells attached to our shirts, when really we looked like idiots who didn't know how a button worked, <laughs> didn't know to put a, a slit in the other side to seal clothing. So, you know, not our not our greatest hour or 4,000 years. And the bad hypothesis we had here was that fashion is never practical. <laughs> Give you another example. This image of milk represents the process of pasteurization. So, pasteurization is a process in which you take a food, you bring it up to almost the boiling point, then you let it cool. This kills the bacteria in the food, making it much more safer to drink.、Uh, milk without pasteurization is really dangerous food to drink when it's been left out for a while. With pasteurization, it becomes one of the safest. Could have invented around、uh, 10,500 BCE. This is when we first started doing farming. We first started having animals. We might want to drink their milk regularly. Actually invented in 1117 CE, and then reinvented in the 1800s by Louis Pasteur, who puts his name all over it. <laughs> 11,500 years where we could have had this technology and didn't, which is, I will say it. I mean, I'm a human, so my best friends are humans, but this is pretty embarrassing for all of us. <laughs> bad hypothesis: food goes bad sometimes. Oh well, nothing we can do. One last example of this. Hot air balloons, symbolizing the human dream of flight. The most、uh, canonical example of humans striving to be more than what they are. We we want to fly. We finally achieve it with lighter than air flight with hot air balloons. 
could have been invented in 200 BCE. This is where in China they come up with paper lanterns, which can fly. They have everything they need right there. Actually invented in 1783 CE by the Montgolfier brothers in France, and the Montgolfier brothers are great because they have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> they have a fire and they discover that this sack on top elevates, and they say, "Oh my God, we just discovered Montgolfier gas, <laughs> which allows things to fly." So we'll build a big Montgolfier balloon and fill it with Montgolfier gas, and people will be able to fly, and it works. What they don't realize is that. Their whole theory behind it is wrong. It's just that less dense air floats to the top, and that's what makes things fly. That's 2,000 years. We could have had it and didn't, but it actually gets worse because the Montgolfier's first balloon wasn't the silks you saw on the previous slide. It was a burlap sack lined with paper, and you can make a burlap sack lined with paper out of natural plant and animal fibers. If you knew what you were doing, one person working alone. Over the course of their life, could easily collect enough fiber to make a big burlap sack, <laughs> lined with a lot of paper, and achieve the eternal dream of human flight at any point in human history. <laughs> so these were fun things to discover about our, our shared past. But if you are going back in time, there are a lot of things that you can reinvent and take the credit for. And it's not just technology. There's things in Art and music that also can be plagiarized, if you want to call it that, from the present and brought back to the past. Obviously, with art,、uh, art styles are something that we invented, and you can take the credit for different styles, put them in different areas. But even art has technological aspects attached to it. A great example here is perspective. This is single-point perspective. Everything goes towards a single vanishing point. We all learned this in. Art class in maybe grade one or two. It's a way to draw cool things in 3D. But the fact that single point perspective, everything goes towards a single vanishing point. We had to figure that out. And before we figure that out, even with multiple point perspective, we had some troubles.、Um, here's a painting from the 600s CE, where the artist is clearly wanting to draw in perspective, but he's he's struggling a bit. You can see here. The table is sort of wonky. This vanishing point's over here. This one's over here. I'm not sure what's going on with this cabinet, but he doesn't have a, a coherent theory of how things recede. Just knows that they do in some way. Without the technology of perspective, he can't draw things properly in a realistic way. And you could argue that, okay, well, this was this was the style at the time. Everyone liked things to look this wonky, and they could have drawn in perspective. They just didn't want to. But that argument is kind of、uh, undermined by noticing that when we do figure out the rules of perspective, artists go hog wild for it. It happened in the Renaissance in Europe. Da Vinci, 1495 CE. This is sort of a hard piece of art to look at with fresh eyes because we've all seen it so often. But if you do look at it with fresh eyes, you can see that it's about five percent religion and 95 percent of like bro. Check it out. I can draw in perspective. <laughs> I got cubes or squares on the wall. I got squares on the ceiling. They're sitting at a nice rectangle in a flat plane. It is Da Vinci showing off that he can draw a 3D picture and make it look great.、And、it's not just Da Vinci. Raphael, philosophers, famous work in the Western canon around the same time, and Raphael can draw a friggin' cube. There's one. There's one. There's one. There's one. <laughs> 
these are just elongated cubes, these steps. <laughs> he's very excited to show off what, he's, what he can do now with this new technology. And it reminds me nothing more than of images in like the late 80s, early 90s, where he figured out ray tracing and everyone was doing chrome spheres over checkerboard patterns. <laughs> Or like when we, when we get lens flares to work, you get a lot of that showing up all of a sudden. <laughs> People like to play with new toys. Art, music, another piece of technology. Obviously, the way you write music down is technological, but also the songs themselves are pieces of art you can take back in time and take the credit for. And so in the book, I put in a bunch of different songs, and the funny story is I wanted to put in uh, Shoop by Salt and Pepper. <laughs> and so I emailed the people holding the rights to the music, and I said, there's no sheet music for Shoop for some reason, but I'd love to make some. What does that cost? And they said, is this for a textbook? And I was like, no, 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 it's, it's like, it, you read it for fun, but it's also like, it's, it's real information, it's real science. So it's kind of a textbook, but not really. And it's about time travel, but it's nonfiction about time travel. And uh, they asked again if it was a textbook, and I said, no, it's not a textbook, and I explained the project more. And they stopped replying to me. <laughs> so instead, I put in a public domain song. The theme to Tetris is a Russian folk song. So I got that transcribed by a musician I know who had never played Tetris. So it is absolutely the Russian version of this and not the Tetris theme of the song, even though they're the same song. But there's also technology around music, which I found super fascinating. So this invention here is called the hook's wheel. And the way it works is that Hook, the gentleman here who invented it, turns this large wheel. It's attached to a smaller wheel to make the smaller wheel turn faster. On the smaller wheel, there's teeth of a known quantity, and you hold a tiny sliver of wood against those teeth. And if you've ever uh, ridden a bike and put a baseball card in the wheel, and spokes the wheel, you know that as the wheel spins faster, the clicks blur together, and the frequency gets higher, the faster the clicks go. Like click, 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 When Hook invented this wheel, it was the first time in human history that you could hear a sound at a known frequency, which was very useful because there was a thing in music at the time called tone inflation, where people were like, you know what? Higher music is more beautiful. And so musicians would tune their instruments higher and higher and higher until they began to exceed the range of human voices. And the vocalists would be like, we can't sing this high. <laughs> You've got to bring it down. And towns even passed laws about how high things could be. Hook's wheel allowed them to set a frequency. And now when you go to an orchestra, when they're tuning up, That first note is A440. It's an A note at 440 hertz, coming all the way back to Hook's wheel. He thought this would make him a lot of money, but the problem is once you, you only need one Hook's wheel, and then you can invent the tuning fork. You get the wheel to do 440 hertz, you make your tuning fork metal, you shape it down until they're the same tone, you no longer need Hook's wheel. <laughs> so it didn't get him fame or fortune, but it did allow us to actually quantify sound for the first time. Something you want to do if you're reinventing the theme to Tetris in the distance past. <laughs> you're also going to want to eat. There's foods you'll want to reproduce in the past. A lot of the food we eat today benefits from selective breeding. We've made plants that we found in nature, and we've made them more suitable to our purposes by just breeding them the way we wanted. And the nice thing about selective breeding is it's a technology that you kind of get for free. If you are farming and you have a plant that's giving you more fruits or more of anything you think is desirable, you will automatically plant more of that plant, trying to get more of it. And over time, that gives an evolutionary pressure to make it evolve into a more convenient version of that. Same with animals. So corn's a great example of a, a thing we have selectively bred the heck out of. <laughs> the 
First domesticated around 7,000 BCE, and the corn we enjoy today,、uh, America, land of corn. I don't need to explain to you what corn is, but it's juicy, delicious, easy to eat, peels easily, and has about 600 soft kernels. The earliest version of corn is a grain called teosite, and it is much smaller. You peel it by smashing it into pieces. It tastes like a dry raw potato, and you only get about five to ten very hard kernels. Per piece of corn, so food is going to be disappointing in the past. Is what I'm trying to say here. Peach is another great example. Modern version of peach, nine to one flesh to stone ratio, soft and edible skin, sweet and juicy. First domesticated around 5500 BCE. The incredibly disappointing ancient ancestor of a peach is a lot closer to a cherry. It's a lot smaller, and nine to two flesh to stone ratio. Waxy skin, tastes earthy, sour, and slightly salty. Just a Garbage peach with potential. With potential, watermelon is a great example too. First domesticated around 3000 BCE. Modern variety, it's huge. You can get it seedless. You just punch your way into it. Delicious taste, sweet smell, and almost fat and starch-free. I discovered the ancient watermelons were much smaller. You get about bitter, nutty seeds inside of them. You need a hammer, like get smash your way in really hard. Uh, high in starches and fats, like don't don't waste your time with this.、Uh, bitter taste, unpleasant smell. This is an image from the book Fig- Table Seven: Food Used to Suck. But the neat thing about watermelon is that we have continued to selectively breed the watermelon, and thanks to the European tradition of still life portraiture, we can actually see the evolution of watermelon over recent history. 1600s. Look at this watermelon. The pith is huge. The seeds are huge. You see the melon part of it really showing through. Same time period, this watermelon is very pithy, very melony, not very attractive. Jump ahead a hundred years, you're seeing less of the pith there. The seeds are still prominent, but it's more approximating what we're used to. Go ahead another hundred years, you can still see some of the melon structure, the meat of the melon, still there. The seeds are getting smaller around 1864, and then the modern model watermelon, seedless. Little tiny white seeds. Like we have finally given the watermelon its true form, what it was always meant to be. We've allowed the watermelon to fully express itself and become the ultimate form of watermeloness. This is what humans can do, given time and dedication. <laughs> But there's also some foods that you can't reproduce in the past that you can enjoy today, and you can't reproduce them if you go back in time. Great example here is the pink red grapefruit. There,、um, so the backstory here is that in the 50s, nuclear power had a bad rap thanks to atomic bombs, and the U.S. government wanted to sort of how do we remediate this? How do we make nuclear power、uh, good for people? Make it may have a good reputation. And so, since it's the 50s, they start a program with the most 50s name in the world, which is Atoms for Peace. And they create through the Atoms for Peace program gamma gardens, where you put a radioactive core in the middle of the garden and put plants in concentric circles around that core. The plants closest to the core totally die. The plants furthest away are least effective, and the plants in the middle mutate. And one of those random mutations turned the grapefruit into this newer grapefruit that was lasted longer on the shelf, tasted less sour, and was easier to ship. Becomes the more popular grapefruit, and 
the grapefruits you enjoy today are usually descendants of this gamma irradiated <laughs> fruit that we created in the 50s as an experiment. So you can't create this in the past unless you get that same random radiation-induced mutation, which is very unlikely to happen. So don't don't look forward to a lot of delicious grapefruits in the past. Uh, there's others. The avocado is a fascinating case. This is the Haas avocado. Most avocados you buy are the Haas avocado. So story here is that you have this guy, Mr. Haas, and he is an avocado farmer slash speculator. And what he likes to do is grow avocado trees with real sturdy bases, and then graft on the branches of other breeds of avocados that produce delicious fruit. And so he pays this other gentleman, Mr. Rideout, to go around town and like fish avocado seeds out of the garbage from restaurants. Anywhere you can find him, he gets paid by the seed. Give him to Mr. Haas. So Mr. Rideout shows up with a seed. Mr. Haas plants it. A plant grows, and he's like, "Great, I'm going to use this for grafting." He grafts some branches on. They don't take. He tries again next year. They don't take. Haas says, "This is a garbage plant. I'm going to cut it down." And then another man. Mr. Cocking shows up, and he says, "Maybe don't cut down that tree. I have a good feeling about that tree." So he doesn't. The tree starts producing its own fruit—a fruit it produces year-round, like other avocados, which only do it seasonally. The fruit transports better. It's a superior avocado, and you only get it with a Mr. Haas, a Mr. Rideout, and a Mr. Cockins in the right place at the right time. And if you're looking for an example of someone who, like, maybe is a time traveler. Cockins is really suspicious. He shows up and says, "Don't cut down that tree. See you never." And now we have the avocado. <laughs> corn's another great example because we have tried to recreate corn from teasite, and we failed. We've never been able to selectively breed、uh, a new breed of corn from the original teasite. We don't know if it was a, a random cross pollination or mutation that was just lucky, but we have not been able to make. New corn from the original ancient ancestor, which suggests it might be really hard if you're trapped in the past to bring back the corn you enjoy. You can definitely try, but I'm just saying there's a danger you might not succeed here. So be aware of that. We have not managed to reproduce corn yet. So after all this, you might be wondering, well, what's the what's the most important invention of all to bring back in time? Like of all these things in your research, Ryan. What's the big one? What's the the motherload of inventions? You might think maybe it's medicine.、Uh, knowing what the organs do helped us out a lot. It helped us get past the idea that disease was caused by bad smells or an imbalance of humors or angry gods.、Uh, it took us a long time as a species to figure out what the organs do because most cultures have a taboo against. Cutting open bodies.、Uh, I'm told it feels really weird. I haven't done it, <laughs> but it's it's challenging to do autopsies. So people kick that can down the road and end up not knowing what the heart does or how blood moves through the veins and all that stuff. So that's a great. Maybe that's a really important example.、Um, maybe chemistry is a great thing to know in the past. Maybe that's number one. It unlocks a whole host of related inventions. This is an image from the book, so don't use this in real life if you're trying to do some chemistry because. I assume once you have a once you met a time machine, that's the last invention you'll ever need to make. You can just go to the future and steal their inventions. And so I tried to make the ultimate periodic table, and I stopped at element 172 because it seemed like at element 173, 
the electrons in the outer shell have to travel faster than light, <laughs> and that seemed like a pretty good place to stop of your impossible elements. But it's not medicine, it's not chemistry that are the, the most important invention, in my opinion. And to tell you what the most important invention is, we have to go back 200,000 years to what are called anatomically modern humans. So this is where humans first have skeletons, anatomy that looks identical to ours. These are humans where if you could go back in time and take, steal one of their babies and bring it back to the present and raise it as your own child, that child would be just as, as clever and inventive and creative as any other baby born today. They've got the nature, they just don't have the nurture. But what happens once we have anatomically modern humans is 150,000 years later, we start getting behaviorally modern humans. These are humans who are acting like us. They're creating art, they're burying their dead, they're, stuff that, they're doing things that we recognize as being intrinsically human. And so the question is, what changed? What brought us from anatomically modern humans to behaviorally modern humans? There's a lot of theories about it, but the one that I think is really compelling is that we started talking to each other. We invented language. And language may seem like a weird thing for an invention because it feels innate, it feels like we kind of get it for free. It doesn't feel like a technology, but it is. It's something that humans invented for themselves. And like any technology, it can be lost. And the, what does language do for you? So many things. It lets you collaborate with others. It lets you express more complex thoughts, both out loud and inside your own head. Many of us think with language because it lets us nail down otherwise amorphous thoughts. It's very easy to say, you know, let's meet your cousin's third sister at the Red House around the corner three weeks from Wednesday. But it's hard to conceptualize that without the words to nail down those concepts. So language also lets ideas survive the death of the post. I can say something and then die, and then that idea can live on. <laughs> but without language, you don't get that. Speaking as we've been doing, talking is only half of the problem of inventing language. The other half is writing. You need writing too. With just talking, you have an oral tradition, Ideas can still travel through generations, but they can, they're vulnerable to change. Writing lets ideas arrive in the present with minimal change. It lets you communicate with people who are out of earshot. It lets you communicate with people who aren't even alive yet when you're writing. And it lets you ship information around the world with no, no more difficulty or expense than shipping grain, less actually because books don't go bad. And it also lets you communicate with people not after you've died, even after they've died, but when everyone who speaks your language and in your culture is dead, the deciphering of the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs being the greatest example of that. So the first time we ever invented written language was in Mesopotamia with cuneiform. It was initially used as a way to keep track of taxes and stock and basically a very human idea, like I need to know who owes me what. And we expanded it out into let's also write down our hopes and dreams and theories and everything else. And this is the first ever language that humans came up with independently. It also was independently invented in Mesoamerica with Olmec script, and it was possibly invented in China. Uh, the difficulty here is that China and Mesopotamia aren't that far apart, and there is a chance that Mesopotamians did not obey the prime directive and culturally contaminated the Chinese with this idea of language, because it seems like the hard part of inventing writing is not the particulars of the script, it's this idea, this big idea of taking invisible sounds and turning them into visible shapes that carry the same meaning. 
So great, we've got talking, we've got writing, problem solved forever, right? This is settled, but it's not because of this. This is a script from Easter Island, the Rapa Nui people. Europeans show up to Easter Island, they found this script, and they said, what is this? And the Rapa Nui people said, oh yeah, this is our uh, writing, but only the elites can read it. So we can't, person you speak to, I can't tell you what this says, but our leaders can tell you what it says. This is our form of writing. And the Europeans say, great, and they continue slave raids and disease and ecological collapse. And they come back 100 years later, and they say, hey, what's going on with this, uh, this Rongo Rongo writing? And the people living in the island, the Rapa Nui people, reply, oh, well, we, um, only the elites could read that, and they're dead. There's no one left alive who can read this language, which is the most terrifying thing I can think of. It's so wild. These shapes, which perhaps once held meaning, are now just squiggles. They're empty. And I say perhaps because we've never been able to decipher this. It has some properties of language, but we can't tell if this was ever a language or if it is just imitating a language, because everyone who spoke it or claimed to speak it or claimed to read it died. Language is a technology, and like any technology, it can be lost, which is terrifying. So, independent invention of language. The latest was possibly the Rapa Nui people in the 1800s. Going into the BCE part of the calendar, we have Mesopotamians with cuneiform, we have Mesoamericans, we have the Chinese, and that's about it. This big idea of written language occurred maybe four times, plus or minus a few, in all of human history, <laughs> which suggests that this is a hard thing to come up with, despite its amazing utility and its transformative nature on society and people. And the earliest time, the earliest invention of written language, was in 3200 BCE. That is 45,000 years between the evolution of behaviorally modern people and writing. 45,000 years. If you go back to anatomically modern people, that is 196,000 years where we could have had this technology and didn't. And this is where you can have the single greatest impact on the planet with a time machine. Go back to those anatomically modern people, teach them to talk, teach them to express themselves. When you're done, teach them to write their thoughts down, and you'll be giving every civilization on the planet a 196,000-year head start. This is where you can have the greatest effect on time with a time machine. So summing it all up, I believe we're all smart enough to rebuild civilization from scratch. It is a surprisingly achievable thing to do. <laughs> I believe there is so much low-hanging fruit in history. I was worried writing this book that there would be not enough to fill out the book. How can I have inventions that one person working alone can do if they know what they're doing? And I could very easily fill this book with so many cool things. And the third is that we're not special. We all tend to think that we are living in a special era in history. And yes, people in the past couldn't put these pieces they had in their hands together in the right way to invent things, but we definitely could, so everything is done. And there's no more low-hanging fruit in society. And I don't believe that's the case. I think there's probably still amazing things that we have everything we need to invent and haven't yet put together in this right way. I think that's a very inspiring thing. But we, right now, are living in the future's past. <laughs> Every day we can make choices to bring about a better tomorrow based on what we're doing right now. And have a butterfly effect go in the direction we want. So we can all do things every day to, to bring about this better tomorrow, and 
feel like we are having the effect of Marty McFly in the past right now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, My pleasure. This was absolutely everything that I, I, I had hoped that we would get. <laughs> um, the, I also want to thank you very much for using five-digit dates uh, yes. in long no fashion, <laughs> uh, so that these can be read into the next uh, deca millennium. Yep, it's um, future ready. And I, I'm curious as to, did you, did you figure out like what your definition of technology is through this book? Because yeah. I, I'd love to play with the idea of what definitions of technology are. Yeah. It boiled down to me to, I think I said in the talk, something you don't get for free. So if you in a human body don't show up in the world with it, then I would call that technology. It's something that humans are making for themselves to make the world easier or change it in some way. And that's a very broad view of technology, I, I suspect, but that's what we're all starting with, right? If you go back in time, 200,000 years, you're seeing these anatomically modern people, you, you have to start with that. And what, what do we build on from that? And then it becomes, oh, okay, it's, it's all technology. So it's a very broad view, I suspect. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, when you talk about language as a technology or writing as a technology, and mm -hmm. we take these things, and I, I think I, one of the founders of Long Now has one of my favorite definitions of technology, which is every, everything that doesn't quite work. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, we, we often, and then, uh, so it's this idea of the things that you're still working on, whereas everything mm -hmm. else, the things that, that already work are the things that you just take for granted and are just like air and water. That's interesting, because I mean, I can put language in that, in that box. There's um, a great research paper I read in a past life as a computational linguist, a grad student, where the open question was, well, why does language evolve so quickly? Like, why can we look at a book from 100 years ago and say that's super dated, and look at a book from 400 years ago and say, I can barely read this Shakespeare, it seems like it's almost a foreign language, and look at what our parents were saying as slang 30 years ago and be like, that's so embarrassing. How could they ever talk that way? And one of the theories was that uh, language is not just hard to learn as an adult. And it's, it's easier as a child. But even as a child, like we, you all taught yourself a language by hearing it spoken around you and reverse engineering everything from that, which is the most impressive thing I can imagine. But the argument was, well, maybe language is not just hard to learn. Maybe it's impossible to learn. Maybe we can never speak the language of our parents or those around us. We're just approximating it. We're getting 90% of the way there. It allows us to communicate easily. It allows us to express what we need to. It does the job, but those edges that we never quite copy allow us to have it evolve very quickly because we don't know what we're doing wrong because that's the way our parents speak. And that explains a lot of why language can be so transformed so quickly. And I think that's, I, I think it's really cool. So put in the thing of things that don't quite work is all human communication. <laughs> but, I mean, the other one that always really gets me and you know, we're building a clock that's trying to last for thousands of years. And so I've done a lot of research into various clock things mm -hmm. uh, from the past. And so there's this thing called the Antikythera device, which yes. I, I assume you know. Yep. Um, but it, it was a technology that was invented. It, it, it did things like show you how various celestial events, as well as things like differential gearing, or it's 
didn't show up again for 1,500 years. Yes. But there's absolutely no reason, and it clearly was not the first device of its time. Yep. Um, but I'm curious as to your take on the antique there device. Oh, it's sad. So yeah, this is, a, this is a machine that's very useful for measuring planets and all this information you want to have. And we find it, bomb the ocean. Uh, I believe it was crushed in some ways. We had to reconstruct with x-rays. Took us a really long time to figure out how it even worked. And discovered, once we realized this machine is doing all this amazing stuff that we thought didn't get invented for another 1,500 years in Europe, uh, this wild situation where you have these people in Europe thinking they're at the state of the art in clock design and they are over a thousand years behind something that is rotting at the bottom of the sea. <laughs> because people who built that, that knowledge was lost. They built it and something happened. Either they kept it a secret or some disaster happened. But the people who knew how to do this were no longer there. And the knowledge of that, even that thing existing evaporated. And you're left with people having to reinvent it. And it took them over a thousand years to do it. Like this is, this to me is the, the value of knowledge, the value of not just having the parts in your hand, but knowing how to put them together. Because like the compass is my favorite example, it's such a simple invention as tying a rock to a string. And it took us so long because it, it's, it just, if you don't have that spark of inspiration, that lucky chance, it doesn't necessarily have to happen. And there's a lot of technologies that we take for granted, but you don't necessarily need them to do stuff, and they just they evaporate, and you don't you don't realize they're gone. It's I mean I'm I'm a big fan of preserving knowledge because of this, but it's it's such a I said terrifying in the talk, and I agree with with my past self. It's terrifying to imagine losing something like writing. <laughs> what do you do then? It's over. Well, and I mean, and things like the Rosetta Stone took 50 years of decoding just to get back to something even with parallel scripts, which is always going to yeah. be insane to me. But, and so we're going to go to some audience questions shortly. Can I just uh, say I love how boring the Rosetta Stone is? The actual right. content of the stone yes. is just like the dullest stuff. It's tax decree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like no one would ever want to read this stone, but it unlocks many languages just by the fact of its existence. Indeed. That's why I, know. I was like, why does no one talk about the Rosetta Stone? What's on it? Oh, it's boring. Okay. Which <laughs> we had this, so we, you know, one of the projects here is this Rosetta disk. And when we were trying to figure out what was the parallel text to put on the disk, um, it very quick, actually, you kind of got to it a little bit in your presentation. My suggestion was, was that it, basically, the most translated things are parts of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so my thought was that it should be the, the story of Babel. Where, oh, that's fine. Um, but it, tur it turns out, it's very hard to find that because of where it is in the Bible, um, whereas something like the story of Genesis is very easy because it's always it's the on the first page, yeah. Pages. <laughs> um, and so people always get a very offended to learn that we have collected, you know, two or three thousand versions of the story of Genesis as the parallel text. Uh, but when they get offended, I ask them what was on the Rosetta Stone, and they don't know. Right. <laughs> you guys can answer boring tax law. <laughs> exactly. Don't waste your time. It's a boring stone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> One of the things I just want to talk about, so you talked about all these foods which uh, have evolved so radically. And I thought you know, one of the things that's funny here, we de-extinct recipes for cocktails. And the, the problem with that, when you read a 150-year-old book that says, crack one egg into a flip, for instance, or egg white, or yep. squeeze one lemon, um, a lemon 150 years ago, or a lime, was, it was big. 
Yep. <laughs> it's a different <laughs> and, fruit. And eggs were also tiny, tiny. And so you have to also de-extinct the, the, the evolution of that. Yeah, we've fruit. had it yeah. even recently. Um, if you don't like Brussels sprouts, give them another shot because over the past 20 years, they've become much less bitter. Uh, it's wild because I thought I didn't like Brussels sprouts and I'm like, they're not the same Brussels sprouts. Um, the earliest recipe I could find was, I think it was a Sumerian uh, beer recipe. And the reason it survived was that they mixed it in with religion. And so the religious text would survive and you had this beer recipe copied. And so it's a prayer to this god of beer saying, oh, you know, I love you, god of beer. I love how you... <laughs> Take the grains and put them in a boiling pot of water. It's so good. I love how you mash the grains <laughs> and let it ferment for 30 days. You're, we love you so much. Like, it's like this hack of turning it into a prayer allowed it to survive. You're like, this is just a recipe for beer. <laughs> so Ben Gutierrez from our uh, online audience, uh, as get, our mic gets to the next person. Um, he asks, are there any technological dead ends that we should avoid if we were to restart some of these technologies. Yeah, you know what? There's a great one. Um, smoking cigarettes, smoking tobacco. It's fascinating. Uh, you look at the death caused by smoking tobacco. Even after we know it's a bad idea, uh, there are more people killed by tobacco in the 20th century than there were in World War I and II combined. There, if you want to kill someone, like I talk about this in How to Take Over the World, it's a super villain. If you want to kill people and get away with it, you know, bombs only can blow up once. You can only shoot so many people before you get shot yourself. But like teaching them to smoke, they will happily, you can kill billions of people and not go to jail for it. So if you're going back in time, just knock the first cigarette or kill the first tobacco plant out of and you will save tons and tons of people. So another there's new, a technological dead end. Another new world crop, just like yes. corn. Right? <laughs> so you started as a computational linguist and then got to dinosaur comics, and then now you're writing all kinds of comics and things like that. Could you just talk a little bit about your trajectory for possibly people that are thinking about maybe not doing the thing they went to college for and doing yeah. the thing they love? I'm a big fan of not doing the thing you went to college for. <laughs> so I, um, in high school, there was this whole, and I'm sure it's still the case, this idea of you need to decide what you want your life to be and set the course of your life. And whatever you do in undergrad will be what you do in grad school, and that'll be what you do as a job. And this is the choice you make now at age 17 will define the rest of your life. So choose wisely and do it in two weeks. And I, I hated that, and I, I was torn between um, writing and computers, and I liked them both. And I ended up studying computers because I thought, well, I could always write in my spare time, but I'm not sure I could program in my spare time. I could have, but it was just a choice I made. And I started doing my webcomic in undergrad and kept up through grad school. And it became this nice sort of balance where the comic could be off doing its own thing. And then when I graduated grad school, we were talking about this earlier, and I, I said that um, to become a full-time writer, I just had to not get a job, <laughs> which is really easy. 
And so it was very sort of simple to slide into. You also had to be successfully doing the other part. Yeah, but that's, I mean, rent, right? yeah, but I mean, this is anything creative. If you, if you want to do something creative, my greatest advice, there's two parts of advice. The first advice is uh, you really need to decouple your self-worth from the work you make. Because in most jobs, if you work hard, you get a better result. But in the arts, you can work hard and nobody cares. <laughs> And you can dash something off that you think is bad and people love it. There's a disconnect between cause and effect. And you can go crazy trying to figure that out, especially online where you have numbers. And like, well, why did this get the bigger number and this got the smaller number? I must crack the code. There's no code to crack. It's random. So that's piece of advice one. And did I have a second piece of advice? That was a really good one, by the way. Yeah, gosh. Don't get a job. job. If I think of my second brilliant piece of advice, I will try. To... <laughs> All right. Well, the last question that I have for you is, is now that you've figured out how to reinvent everything and uh, take over the world, which is your next book, uh, what, what are you working on now? Trying to remember what my piece of advice was for <laughs> <laughs> aspiring artists. God, I'm going to sit up like straight in bed at four in the morning and be like, oh, that was it. Wear shorts or something. I don't know. <laughs> Um, we can put it in and post. Yeah, we'll, we'll fix it yeah. in post. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yes. but anyway, I want to thank you so much for oh. coming here. But I want to give you one of our challenge coins. Oh, my God. That, thank uh, you. For the interval. And thank you so much. This was a dream come true. For you this is so great. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you all. Ryan North isn't the only author who has tried to compile all the knowledge you'd need to rebuild civilization. A few years before Ryan wrote How to Invent Everything, Louis Dartnell put together what he calls The Knowledge, a book that provides a guide on how to rebuild our world from scratch. Much like Ryan, Lewis uses the concept in his book to explore a few key ideas about how modern civilization was built. We've included a few excerpts from Louis Dartnell's Long Now Talk touching on everything from the complexity of reinventing the pencil to the importance of the printing press. But what I've been thinking a lot more about recently is on something completely and utterly different. And let's imagine that this actually happens, that there's some kind of global catastrophe, a doomsday event, an apocalypse, and civilization has collapsed, and the vast majority of humanity has died. But some people survive. Let's say that this interval here has served as some kind of hardened bunker, and we survive the end of the world as we know it. We form a post-apocalyptic community of survivors, and we venture out in an hour's time to see our, our dead civilization in ruins and, and rubble around us. Well, what now? What would you need to know, not just to survive in the immediate aftermath, but to thrive in the long term? How could you go about rebuilding a society from scratch and even trying to accelerate the process of rebooting a civilization? How could you take modern scientific understanding and technologies and compress down what took us maybe 10,000 years the first time around, from the very beginnings of agriculture and the first adobe cities up to radio and electronics and internal combustion engine and antibiotics. 
How could you accelerate that whole process of discovery? What single book, what manual of the most useful information would you want handed to you as a survivor of the apocalypse that told you how to rebuild everything you would need? And it should come as no surprise that this is the book that I've tried to write. <laughs> it's called The Knowledge. It's available at the back of the room at a discount. But before we go any further, I, I, I should come clean with you. Um, I don't actually believe the world is about to end. I'm not talking about survivalist skills. Um, I'm not talking about what, what nature the apocalypse might take. It's just the starting point, the premise for thought experiment. As a scientist, I wanted to explore the behind-the-scenes fundamentals of how our world works. What are the pillars that support our everyday lives that we just take for granted nowadays? All the behind-the-scenes, invisible stuff that we don't even think about anymore, but maybe a few generations in the past uh, would have been very well, well known and, and common knowledge. And I think that the nub of the problem, the core of the problem that we would face trying to rebuild everything from scratch, was hit upon very nicely um, by an article by Leonard Reed, an essay called I Pencil. Uh, now, the I Pencil isn't some hugely underwhelming new gadget from Apple. It's a story, it's a narrative. And it makes the point that this pencil, that the simplest implement or tool that, that we're ever likely to use or interact with in our day-to-day -day lives, there is not a single person on the planet that knows how to make a pencil. No one person. Because human knowledge, of course, is distributed across the entire population, from people that know how to operate a timber mill, or dig metal ore out the ground, or to refine the fuel that we use for transporting everything around. No one person knows all of the details for even something as simple as a pencil here. So we would have to try to relearn and redevelop a lot of that knowledge and work together as a team, as a community, to redevelop all those capabilities that we would have lost if our civilization collapsed. And the, the major themes, or the major areas of knowledge that I focused on during this three-year research and, and writing project, which are blatantly the chapters of the book, uh, are things like agriculture. How many of us today, living in the modern world, we just walk into a supermarket and pick up whatever you fancy when you're feeling peckish? How many of us today know how to walk out onto a muddy field with a handful of seed and make food come back out of that field before the winter draws in and you starve to death? What are the, the fundamentals of farming? And other areas of, of providing clue, uh, clothes for ourselves and all the materials and substances that we rely upon in our day-to-day -day life. Elements of generating power or reinventing medicines, uh, the, the principles of transportation and communication. I'll pick along on some of these things um, during the talk, give you a kind of insight into one or two, uh, what I think to be the most interesting topics. But actually, the chapter I found most satisfying as, as another mini thought experiment. It's the penultimate one here, time and place. And so imagine that you wake up from, from a coma, or you stumble out of a cryogenic pod, or you fall through a time warp into some distant time in the future. It doesn't really matter. It's a thought experiment. But you've woken up someplace on the Earth, and at some time in the future. What can you do? What could you observe in the natural world around you to pinpoint exactly where you are, your coordinates, your latitude and longitude, but also what time is. 
And I don't just mean trivially, is it lunchtime? Is it one o'clock in the afternoon? Because you can, you can build a sundial pretty readily. But how could you work out what day of the year it is? An unknown time into the future. I.e., how could you reconstruct the calendar from first principles? Or how could you work out what the year it is in far into the future? You know, the first question out of any time traveler's lips is, what year is this man? Well, how could you work that out for yourself? And there's a clue on the whiteboard here, which I will not reveal unless you'd like me to uh, at the end of the talk, as to what observations of the stars you could make to pinpoint surprisingly accurately what year it is and indeed what date uh, of the calendar it is. And these, these aren't frivolous things. Being able to pinpoint where you're on the Earth is the essence of navigation and crossing the oceans for trade and exploration. Being able to track your progress through the seasons across the year is how you ensure that your agriculture is successful, that you put your seeds in the ground at the right moment and you harvest them back out again, the plants back out again before the winter draws in and you starve to death. These are some of the most fundamental challenges and problems that civilization has been solving over centuries and millennia. And I've provided for you the cheat sheet of how to do the stuff from scratch for yourself. But if we link back into the, the premise of this thought experiment, where the vast majority of humanity has suddenly died, the people have gone, but the stuff is left lying around. As a community of survivors, you wouldn't have to do things immediately, the very first morning when you wake up, wake up with a hangover from the night before when the world ended. You would, you would have this grace period. You'd be able to coast on the stuff left lying around. But another gateway technology within communication, something you would try to leapfrog back to as quickly as you physically could, because it unlocks uh, vast numbers of other capabilities to, to pull up lots of things in your society all at the same time. But the gateway technology you'd want to get to is the printing press. Because before the printing press, in our own history, if you want to copy a document, if you want to share an idea across the whole population, the only way of doing that is filling a room full of people like this, getting people to copy it out letter by letter in handwriting. It's incredibly laborious and time-consuming and expensive, which means that only rich, powerful people get to choose which ideas are allowed to spread. But with the invention of the printing press, knowledge itself became democratized. Anyone could share any thoughts or ideas they had. And it, it massively accelerates the rate at which society can progress, not just from scientific understanding, but political ideologies or philosophies. And again, just to have it as a proof of concept, um, I was very smug with myself, <laughs> again, when I realized that in the pages of the knowledge, in the pages of this book, I can explain to you, I can tell you how to make your own paper from scratch, how to make your own ink, and how to construct a rudimentary printing press. So it's almost as if, within the pages of the knowledge, it contains the genetic instructions for its own reproduction. Tongue-in-cheek, only one single copy of the book would need to survive the apocalypse, and it can reproduce itself and be shared out amongst everyone that needs to know. And as a, just as a proof of principle, here is the page of the book about making a printing press, printed using a primitive printing press onto handmade paper. Um, and again, come up, come and have... You are very kind, thank you. Um, do come up and have a, have a look at that afterwards. Come and have a nose at all the kind of objects and artefacts up here. Thank you for joining us today. Before you go, a small ask of our listeners. 
If you like our podcast, please tell your friends about it. We rely almost exclusively on word of mouth to grow our audience. And anytime you rate or leave a review of the podcast, or tell a friend about an episode that you've been thinking about, it helps us nurture this long-term thinking community. If you'd like to learn more about our projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, watch the talks online, or become a member, go to longnow.org. You'll also find the full audio and video of Ryan North's talk. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. This work wouldn't be possible without you. Today's music comes from Jason Wool, as well as Brian Eno's January 07003 Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now. Big thanks to our production team, Danielle Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Andrew Warner, Jacob Cooperman, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. We look forward to talking with you next time, and until then, keep moving patiently, responsibly, and exploring the long view.